Well, good morning to you. It's a joy to be together in God's house uh, with you. Would you pray with me as we turn to the Lord's Word again this morning? Father, we thank you that you are the living God who speaks a living word into our life continually, and we pray that you would do it again this morning. We pray that you would speak living hope into our lives, that you would, you would show us again the, 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 the sureness of your promises to us in Christ. Lord, plant your word deep in our hearts, uh, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. We live by promises because they give us hope. A little child who's afraid of a big slide will risk it if there's a parent at the bottom promising, don't worry, I will catch you. A young man or a young woman immigrating to a new country will risk it if there's a family member on the other side promising there's a house and a job for you here. God knows that we live by the, the sure hope of promises so listen for the huge promises that God makes to David in 2 Samuel 7. It's in the worship folder or page 259 of your pew Bible. Hear the word of God. <clears throat> now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall no longer afflict them as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. 
the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Local St. Louis journalist Tony Messenger has been writing about an adoption story for the past several years that shows the power of a promise. Five years ago, a little boy was born in the city of Kinshasa in Central Africa in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Wearing only a diaper, he was found alone on a trash heap at the outskirts of the city. Now, years of war in this country have left millions of children on the streets, but this little boy's life changed forever when Adam and Jill Trower from Pike County in Missouri learned of him through a friend who raises money for orphanages in Central Africa. Since he was truly alone and had no family to care for him in Africa, the Trowers got all the necessary legal approvals to adopt him, and they named him Luke. But despite having all the approvals, the State Department has been holding up their adoption for the past five years. And Luke has been living only seeing and hearing the promise of his new family online. And yet the Trowers have persevered in appeals and court cases because they made a promise that they intend to keep. And they recently prevailed when a federal judge declared that their adoption was valid all along after all. This is the story of the power of a promise. The Trowers entered Luke's life and promised to bring him into their house and home to be his family forever. And all of their lives have been radically changed because of that promise. God's story is a bit like this one. For he has entered into our world making promises that will radically change our lives when we build our lives upon them. This passage in 2 Samuel 7 is God's covenant with David. Although the word covenant does not occur here, Psalms 89 and 132 uh, refer to it as a covenant, and it contains all the elements of God's covenant. Uh, God's covenant is the structure that God gives to his relationship with us, and his covenants are always full of promises. The sheer number of God's words here in this passage tells us that this covenant with these promises is hugely important. At this point in the biblical story, this is the longest quoted speech from God in the Old Testament after the account of God's words in establishing the covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai after the exodus in Egypt. And what God promises to David becomes the foundation, not only of David's future life, but the future foundation of the entire kingdom of Israel and through David's line for the future of the whole world. Listen to to God's crescendo of promises that we see in this passage, starting in verse 9. I will make for you a great name. Verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people, and they will be disturbed no more. Verse 11, I will give you rest from all your enemies, and will make you a house. Verses 12 and 13, this house will be a kingdom Verse 14, God will be a father to the king and thus to the whole nation. Verse 15, my steadfast love will not depart. And verse 16, here's the big one. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You see, David's vision was too small. He said to God, how about a nice building in Jerusalem? And God's reply is basically, I had something a bit bigger in mind. How about I remake the whole planet? (laughs) David says, 
God, I'll build you a house with really nice wood. And God says, I'll build you a house, a house of people, a house of kings and a kingdom that will bring rest and peace, a kingdom that brings steadfast love that will be eternal for the whole world. God describes David as a man after his own heart. And this whole sermon series has been exploring how in David's life, God is at work to shape our hearts. And this passage shows us that a heart for God is a heart that looks to the future with hope and trust in the promises of God. Do you have that heart for him? Do you want more of that heart for him? If so, then you must fix your heart on these promises for two reasons. The first is this. First, only God's promises are great enough to satisfy us forever. David had a small plan, didn't he? A plan to build a temple for God in Jerusalem. Now that's not a bad plan, but it's a plan that might have tempted David and his people to be satisfied with too little. At this point in history, David could easily think that he had arrived. God had taken David from the fields tending sheep and promised to make him a king. And now Saul's persecution and the rebellion of the tribes is over. And David sits on the throne of a united kingdom. David could easily think, I've arrived. And even more so, David and the nation could easily think that Israel has arrived. The kingdom of God has arrived because about 800 years before David or so, God had promised to Abraham that he would make him into a great nation, that he would give him the land that he lived in, and that kings and a kingdom would come from him. And by David's time, all three of those promises have come to pass. So at this point in the biblical story, it would be easy for David and the people of Israel to be satisfied and to think, this is it. This is the end. This is the beginning of the happily ever after that our hearts have been longing for. But David's plan was too small to satisfy forever. And our God is always in the business of take, replacing our two small plans with his big ones because we are always trying to be satisfied with too little. Have you ever arrived at a place or a stage in your life that you'd been wanting for a long time, only to find that when you arrived there, it was not what you were hoping? Maybe you're a student and you've been waiting all long year for summer vacation and summer's now finally here, and it's great, and then a week later, everybody's bored. <laughs> or maybe you've arrived at high school, but then the classes are harder than you thought, and the relationships are more complicated, and it's got all its own prom problems that make it worse than middle school, if there is such a thing. <laughs> or maybe you've arrived at a job that you've been training to do for years, and <laughs> only to find that this job has things you don't like to do. And there's a manager who treats people terribly. And this is not at all the vision of adult life that you had been planning. Or maybe you've arrived at a certain place of financial security, only to find out that John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest people in the history of our country, was right when he was asked, how much money does it take to make a person truly happy? And his answer is, just one more dollar. Or maybe you've arrived at a new house, or a promotion, or retirement. And I keep making this list go on and on and on because we keep thinking we've arrived and the goalposts keep moving farther and farther and farther back. 
When and how can we reach the place where the deepest longings of our hearts can be fully and truly satisfied forever? We are always prone to put too much hope, too much confidence in the milestones that we reach in this life. And that's especially true of us modern people in the modern world. Philosopher Charles Taylor argues in his book, A Secular Age, what makes the modern world unique compared to the ancient past is that so many people are trying to find total human fulfillment in this physical universe and in the few decades of our life in this present age with no hope or focus on God or things eternal that are above and beyond what happens in the universe right now. Taylor calls this living in the imminent frame. That's imminent with an A, meaning the things that are going on in this world right now. And what we discover is that living in the imminent frame is a cage because nothing in this cage ever truly satisfies and we feel trapped all the money and jobs and cars and houses, all the trips and achievements and food and drugs and sex, all the human relationships and awards and prestige and legacy, every bit of it leaves us asking, is this all there is? In, the world of, in this world of thing, the, in the, these things of this world alone, and especially in this age broken and cursed by sin, nothing, truly satisfies forever. In the things of this world, we will never arrive at the rest and peace and joy that our heart most deeply longs for. God knows that we need promises big enough to satisfy forever because we are designed by God to find that satisfaction in Him and in a kingdom that lasts forever. As He says to us in the book of Ecclesiastes, God has put eternity into our hearts. And as the philosopher Pascal once wisely wrote, no one without faith has ever reached the goal of happiness at which everyone is continually aiming. All persons complain, princes and subjects, nobles and commoners, old and young, strong and weak, learned and ignorant, healthy and sick, in every country, in every time, of all ages and conditions. And so he concludes, none can help since this infinite abyss of our longing hearts can only be filled with an infinite object, in other words, by God Himself. There is an infinite hole in your heart and mind and in mine that no finite thing in this world can ever satisfy. And that explains why even when things are going well in life, we are always complaining. We are always a bit unhappy and dissatisfied, even when we think we've, we've reached the best. This insatiable hunger in us for more and more is a clue that we were made for something more than the finite things and the limited time um, in this world. We were made to love and enjoy God in a sinless world forever. And so God speaks God-sized promises to David and to us to awaken in us the hope that, that, there, that there is a reality that is great enough to satisfy the God-sized hole at the core of our heart. There is greater rest coming, friends. There is greater peace that is coming. There is steadfast love forever that is coming. There is a kingdom coming that will flood the whole world with goodness and glory forever and ever. 
Can I get an amen? amen. Thank you. <laughs> and only that promise, only that promise of knowing the king and living in that kingdom is great enough to satisfy forever. The second reason why a heart for God must fix itself upon the promises of God is that God's promises are solid enough to trust. Promises that would satisfy our heart's longings are only worth anything if they're actually solid enough to trust. And it can be hard to trust. Even a trustworthy promise is hard to trust when tragedy and suffering cloud our vision and make the light of hope grow dim. And sometimes, sometimes we make it harder for ourselves by fixing our hearts and our hopes on the wrong things altogether. Sometimes we can begin to doubt God or become angry with God when He fails to do things that He never actually promised to do. We often have plans and expectations for God. We've got the whole story scripted in our heads. God must give me this outcome at the time that I want, in the way that I want, with the people I want, for the costs and sacrifices that I have decided are acceptable. And we can come to convince ourselves that God is only trustworthy and faithful to his promises if he follows our script, and especially so if the things that we want are actually good things in and of themselves. So without even fully realizing it, it's so easy for us to invest the hopes of our hearts in these outcomes. And we can come to believe that our plans just are God's promises. But what happens when all those plans crumble? When your life doesn't follow the script in your head? When your hopes and dreams lie smashed in pieces like shattered glass across the floor? What then? It's then that we must fix our hearts even more clearly upon the things that God has promised to us. We can see in 2 Samuel 7 that he promises us sustaining grace for the present and the future. In the present, he has promised that he will be a loving father to us. And so he promises his abiding presence and his steadfast love that will not depart from us. His, he promises his guidance and whatever provision is necessary to lead us to the future. And he promises us a future that will be the fullness of security and peace and joy forever and ever. These promises... All of God's promises are always solid enough to trust. They're solid enough to bear the weight of our life and our lament and our sorrow and our hope so that we can persevere in faith and love in this life until that promised future fully arrives with the return of the king. David knew that he had good reasons, solid reasons to trust God because his kingship could not be explained in any other way apart from God's call and God's help. And we, we have even more reasons to trust God than David did. We can trust God's promises in 2 Samuel 7 because they have come to us in history in the flesh of the ultimate son of God, the house that is the ultimate house, the ultimate dwelling place of God, Jesus, the promised king. We can trust God's promises even through suffering because the God who made them is the God who voluntarily walked in our shoes, 
who voluntarily took our suffering and our sin and our evil upon himself in love. These promises now come to you in the nail-scarred hands of the Son of David and Son of God, Jesus the Christ. You can trust the heart and character of the God who hangs on a cross for you. And we can trust God's promises because you can observe God at work right here and now in the people in this church who have walked through every kind of suffering you can imagine. Mental illness, losing work, financial insecurity, divorce, abuse, addictions, arrest and incarceration, the betrayal of friends, the death of loved ones, even loved ones so young and often in terrible ways, and much more. And in the midst of all the anguish and the confusion, in the midst of all the grief and sorrow and lament, there are people in this very room, there are people in this church family who can testify that God's steadfast love has never departed from them, that God was faithful to sustain them as he promised, that God somehow gave them faith and hope to endure, and even to see peace and joy return as they keep on turning and returning to God and walking in community with his people. And we can trust God's promises because eternal life, life beyond death, has already begun in real history when Jesus rose from the dead. Before Jesus, it was a total mystery how these promises in 2 Samuel 7 could possibly be fulfilled. I mean, how could a son and king from David's line reign over an eternal kingdom when Israel later goes into exile and loses their kingdom entirely? How would it ever happen? But now it's clear. Jesus, born in David's city as a direct descendant of David, has risen from the dead to reign forever as king over the whole world. So the foundation of God's promises to David have already been laid. The promises have already begun to come true in real history, in the real person of Jesus the King. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 1, Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. If you have questions or doubts that we have the most reliable evidence to support the belief that Jesus really did rise from the dead, I would love to talk with you to share what a solid reasons there are to trust this claim. Friends, God wants to satisfy our hearts and our hopes beyond all that we can ask or imagine. His promises are great enough to satisfy. And God has given us good reasons, solid reasons in his actions and in his character to trust that he is doing and will do all that he has said. His promises are solid enough to trust. May God help us fix our hearts on him so that we can know and experience his faithfulness and goodness and joy now and forevermore. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we are so grateful that you are a God who makes and keeps your promises always. We thank you that your promises are always yes and amen to us in Jesus. And we pray you'd give us faith to trust you and eyes to see your hand at work, eyes to see your faithfulness in our lives and in the lives of people around us. 
Would you give us open ears to hear the testimony of people around us who will testify that your steadfast love never departs from us? Lord, thank you for your hold upon our lives, and we pray that you would lift the eyes of our hearts to to behold your glory day by day, Lord, that you might sustain us in trusting your promises uh, no matter what comes. We thank you for your sustaining and persevering grace with us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.